By taking some shortcuts, I got home as I'd hoped while he was still out. I put the lumpy sack in the back of our closet. Then I undressed, washed, and got into bed naked. I caressed myself and masturbated, taking a pleasure in my own body, which was rare for me. And the orgasms that slowly arose were both simple and deep, like well-earned rewards after hard work. After a while, he came in and I feigned sleep. He was breathing noisily, almost wheezing his face a mask of something like despair. He dropped into an armchair, tossing and turning as if he were writhing in pain. In the morning, when I woke up, he was already awake, lying beside me, an expression of mindless ignorance and idiocy on his face. I told him I had a surprise to show him. I got out of bed and I left the room. Then I came back in, holding the trembling cat against my naked breasts. This is Blanche. I found her on the street and took pity on her, I said, referencing an emotion I wasn't known for. Have you ever seen anyone actually grow pale? Because that is exactly what happened to the poor dumb fuck. Have you ever seen anyone's flesh crawl? I swear I saw his do exactly that. The poor cat's head had grown in without stripes. Just what you might call the shadows of stripes. I put her down on the floor and she hobbled toward him. A totally fucked up version of a domestic pussy. He smiled very weakly, and then he left the room quickly for the hall bathroom, from which the sounds of vomiting soon emerged. Do you know, my stomach hasn't been right since we had dinner at Luigi's, was the first thing he said when he came back in the bedroom, huge beads of sweat making a perfect circle around his head, as if he were a sickly king who had just removed his crown, and from that moment on, unfortunately, I never knew him to have a full week of perfect health. Something strange was wrong with him, and strangely, I happened to know exactly what it was. I've always loved eccentric, self-published books by people on the fringes of science. People who taught at obscure, experimental colleges and whose articles didn't appear in the mainstream journals, but who, nonetheless, sometimes posed extremely daring and penetrating questions. So, I happen to be one of the few people around to notice, much less read, Harley Granville's book, Nature fights back. <laughs> I was intrigued by its one-line description in the catalog. Possible consequences of grain number one. And so I ordered a copy. In a quiet manner, Granville simply pointed out that since 
grain number one, gave the digestive system of an awful lot of animals some remarkably powerful, almost explosive chemical tools to play around with, a question did arise about whether those rather unattractive and charmless beings that we call microorganisms, you know, bacteria and viruses, might not just possibly be a bit more sensitive and a bit more easily offended than they're given credit for. And if so, perhaps in response to the disruption of their lives inflicted on them by grain number one, they might just possibly adapt in certain ways that would be harmful to other forms of life. Granville spoke frankly of the sickness and death of the human species. And then, in an epilogue, he predicted the sickness and death of other species as well. In his opinion, it would all spread. I never mentioned that I'd read the book, but of course it was obvious that if there were going to be a sickness caused by grain number one, the first person to be affected by it might very well be him. My stomach remained distinctly disturbed. Days passed, then weeks, then three or four years, and I couldn't seem to recover entirely. God knows what Luigi must have put in that spaghetti, I used to say all the time, with diminishing humor. Going to the office each day seemed more and more difficult, more and more irritating, and less and less interesting. So not too long after my 50th birthday, I sold my share of the company and said goodbye to all that. In any case, I was tired all the time, exhausted, really. I wasn't so sick that I couldn't leave the house, but as there was nothing terribly pressing that I had to do, I fell into the habit of spending my days, for the most part, in bed. Morning after morning, as Robin left for work, she would awaken me by kissing me on the lips. Sometimes her kisses were wet and tempting, and as her breasts fell over my face, I'd sort of reach out to touch them, and she'd always pull away. And then she'd leave, and there I'd be, alone all day in the house with Blanche. Blanche, this strange, sickly, uninteresting cat whom I didn't like. And as the years passed, the days in those overheated, airless rooms where I never wore clothes seemed to grow longer and longer. For hours at a time, Blanche would sit perched on top of my curled-up dick. Perhaps once or twice a day I'd get slightly aroused. She'd wriggle herself discreetly off of me onto the sheet. I'd laboriously jerk off, and she'd watch casually. Every once in a while I'd intentionally hit her with the sperm, which was sometimes droll. Sure, I was drinking, but drinking could only soften the edges of things, and by late afternoon I'd usually be weak with nausea, making my way often into the bathroom to vomit, 
then lying quite still on the bathroom floor till I vomited again. Just before Robin would come home each night, I'd brush my teeth and put on a shirt and trousers. At first it sort of amused me to see how long I could get away with wearing the same ones before Robin would ask, Are you sure you've done the laundry? (laughs) I felt at that time that Robin and Blanche were working together, and it made sense to imagine that Blanche possessed a very particular power, a power often referred to in casual conversation, but always as a joke. In real life, I knew it wouldn't have been funny. Not at all, because I felt Blanche had the power, the capability of literally being able to bore someone to death. At night I'd come home, and he'd clearly feel ill and much too weak, he'd imply, to have sex with me. Sometimes he'd beg me to masturbate in front of him. I'd always decline. And then he'd beg me to watch his own masturbation. I usually said, no. But sometimes I would, and it was pitiful how much he wanted me to find him watching the act how much he himself wanted to find in doing it. On those pointless evenings, I would stare at his member. I'd watch him caress it. I'd look and look. But there were no answers in there. It didn't talk. It didn't say anything. No answers at all. He wanted it to speak, to really tell him what he needed to know, as if the sperm spilling out of it could be thought or feeling, an idea, happiness, some service to humanity, completion, love. But the sperm was only sperm, and there was nowhere else he could turn to for help. I understood the problem. Everywhere he went, he was blocked by boredom. The boredom really was something unbeatable. Who could fight that? No one could. He had no way out. What could break through it? I mean, what could he do? Could he kill someone? (laughs) Well, maybe. Well, hmm, who Me? Sure, I guess. Well, sure he could. How would he do it? Stab me? Great. Why not? It would be amazing. The blood pouring out of me hotter than coffee. My skin in shreds. The fullness of the screams. My voice without any inhibition at all. Would he have an orgasm? You. Bet he would. The best of his life. The very best moment ever of his life. Pure joy. But then what? He'd be sitting there with my dead body. 
Nothing he wanted. The whole fucking high would last 15 minutes, and then he'd be back with his boredom and his dick. Occasionally, in order to avoid Blanche, I'd lock myself in the bathroom right after lunch. Sometimes I'd lie in the bathtub for hours, squirting water at my dick from different directions using a special nozzle attachment Robin had bought me, trying to delay my orgasms for as long as possible. Occasionally in the evenings, Robin would ask me if I wanted to go out somewhere to some social gathering, a concert, or some sort of performance. But it always seemed too difficult. I was too worn out. What is boredom, one might very well ask. I thought about that a lot at that time. I came to see it eventually as a sort of spiritual inability to digest the events that make up our lives so that they can be turned into the substance that gives us pleasure. One night I agreed to go to a dinner party just a few streets away, but almost as soon as we arrived at the party, Robin placed me very carefully at an enormous table full of people and then wandered off and disappeared into a swirling mob of guests. I had no idea how to behave, so I addressed myself totally to the plate in front of me, and, well, you know, the food wasn't bad, it was some sort of chicken. But I was having trouble breathing, and I must have been finding it difficult to hear properly, because the person next to me seemed to be trying to tell me his name, and it sounded as if he was saying that his name was... Sentimental, melting, custard-faced, mouth-droop. Robin never reappeared. And a long time passed with everyone talking and eating, maybe a few hours, and then I slowly began to realize that the discussion at the table was starting to repeat itself word for word, and I myself was saying certain things for the second time. For some reason, that terrified me. I turned ice cold. I stood up in a crudely impolite manner, and I ran out of the party and out into the rain. When I arrived at home, I found the cat walking nervously on top of the sofa, obviously at a loss or distracted somehow. Then I looked upstairs and I saw Robin also with the same distracted face, it seemed, coming out of the bedroom completely nude, her cunt dripping. Through the crack of the open bedroom door, I could see her husband Mike disconsolately covering his enormous member with a small bit of underwear. The hint of sexuality was unmistakable. 
Perhaps I haven't come at an appropriate time, I began awkwardly, my own dick slightly lifted by the unexpected scene. Robin and her husband dismissed my remark with a sort of exhausted irritability, pulling on their clothes with abrupt movements. The next night, I made dinner. I was chopping vegetables with a long, sharp knife. So the guy, I'm sorry, what did you say? My attention somehow wandered for a moment. You were saying that Paul Hay... I said that Paul Clay was one of Jerry's favorite painters. So if you wanted to get a present for Ed, I saw a nice book of watercolors by Paul Clay. And if you thought that... Why that would, be... would I be getting a present for Fred? For Ed. Ed. Oh, Ed. Yes, I can remember a period when Jerry liked Clay, but that was a long time ago. I haven't heard Jerry say anything about Clay for at least ten years. As I prepared the vegetables, Robin seemed to be preparing her own suicide. She put the needle on a record and set up in a circle on the floor a basin of water, some soap, and a few candles. As I began to prepare the rice, Robin took the knife I'd been using for the vegetables and placed it in the center of the circle. What are you doing? Nothing, obviously. At that point, she started to undress. Are you going somewhere? No. And she picked up the knife with both hands. Well, then why are you... Fuck! Will you stop that? Is this that suicide thing again? Not suicide! What's going on? What's happening? What's happening? <laughs> What's happening? What's happening? <laughs> That's becoming sort of like a slogan with you, isn't it? You seem to say it. So frequently. It's like one of those phrases fanatics use when they meet each other, like, Heil Hitler! What's happening? What's happening? <laughs> Here's what's happening! She brushed at me with the knife and tried repeatedly to stab me. I grabbed her wrists. We struggled. Finally, I took the knife. For a moment, I threatened her with it. And I threw it on the floor and ripped the needle off the record. Look, I'll tell you my problem. I'm terribly tired. I'm desperate to sleep, but I can't sleep. You can't? I... Why not? I can't sleep, obviously, because Blanche wanders around all night long. She... Really? She does? She knocks things over. She goes through every room. Well, maybe we'd better get rid of her then. What? I don't mean kill her, for Christ's sake. I just mean maybe we should find another home for her. I don't know. Write an ad or something. Really? Do you think so?
really like this sofa. It's great. Two days later, Rose answered our ad, and Robin interviewed her. Oh, thank you. But look, I, um, <clears throat> do you, do you mind my asking, why do you want a cat? Exactly. Do you like animals? Well, for my apartment, actually, you know, for mice, I just, I just, I hate mice. Oh, sure, yes, I understand. But can I be frank with you? Hmm. I love Blanche. I want to give her to someone who would also love her. Well, hmm. <laughs> that's asking quite a lot. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure I can promise that. That might be a little too much for me. <laughs> Look, I'll be honest with you. I don't care about the cat. That was sort of a pretext. I'm actually looking for a girlfriend for this man I know. Oh, you... I've, I've sort of been living with him myself for a while, actually, but we've been having some problems. Aw, I see. Robin brought out a large photograph and handed it to Rose. This is his penis. Wow. Nice. So, you're interested then? Oh, interested. Well, uh, I don't... I... Hey! Wait, what luck? This is him now. Oh, I'm sorry. Am I... Oh. No, no. This is Rose. She's come to see about Blanche. Oh, I see. Are you gonna take her? Well, the... Possibly. Oh. <laughs> well, uh, just let me know how you feel about it. Give it some thought. Um, here's my here's my business card. It has a picture of um, my vagina on it. Oh, 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 great! Thanks. Yes, great. Well. Bye. Bye. Well, I hope that girl will take Blanche. There's something agreeable about her somehow. Oh, you liked her, did you? Yes, I did. Why is that, do you think? Oh, I don't know. She seemed quite nice. And um, I, I guess I tend to be, you know, affectionate. and. Uh... But you don't like Blanche, it seems. And you don't like me, we know that. What? How can you say that? I've ruined my life for you, isn't that enough? It's something, sure. It doesn't mean you like me. Ah, uh, I see. Anyway, be honest. She's the one who interests you now. Something's going to happen between you and her. I'd stake my life on it. Oh, come on. Something sexual. God, I love that word. <laughs> the next morning, Robin gave Blanche to Rose. So during the nights, I slept soundly. <laughs> 
and by day I sat in my chair by the window, and once again spring came. In the mornings, amazingly, I'd sometimes wake up because very nice lips covered with lipstick were enclosing my member and playing with it briefly. And sometimes Robin would look into my face for a long time and give my dick the kindest caress before picking up her briefcase and going out the door. At night, she cooked me large portions of food with big bowls of rice and rich sauces, which surprisingly soothed my stomach rather than the reverse. And finally, after a few months, I felt much stronger. And so one sunny morning in the middle of the summer, on a sudden impulse, I looked for Rose's business card and I called her number. Rose invited me over to her apartment on Apple Street, where she conducted a small design business right out of her home. She designed fantastically colored plates and cups. And so when I went over, there were a lot of cups and computers covering her bed, but we moved them quickly out of the way, and then we took off our clothes and sat on top of her bright green sheets. Her vagina looked just like the one in the picture, I rather blandly remarked. In other words, we had a little informal conversation. We exchanged a few thoughts, and soon we were fucking. It felt good. Rose came quickly and happily, and I sort of glowed with a kind of warmth as my orgasm seemed so painless and free. Right at its height, I suddenly felt something big and furry probing my asshole. I twisted around, and there was Blanche sitting quietly behind me, her whiskery face looking sheepish and humorous. Rose pulled Blanche toward her with a joyful smile and it was totally clear that Rose had fallen in love with Blanche during the period of time in which they'd lived together. And Blanche had changed. Cuddled cozily against Rose's breasts, there was something so likable about her now. As she wiggled her paws around Rose's arms, I found that I, too, was now laughing with delight. And when Rose and I made love again, the unexpected way that Blanche managed to wind herself around our asses as our genitals bumped softly against each other seemed to Rose like the funniest thing in the world. Afterwards, I stared at Rose as she drifted off into a little sleep. And then Blanche walked slowly across the sheets and nuzzled against me. I looked into her face, which was oddly beautiful. Her personality was so thoughtful now. She was amusing, gentle. She'd become a friend. Friend.
Sotland was the composer, engineer, designer, editor, and podcast director. The mezzo-soprano was Hai Ting Chin. Mastering was by Mark Fuller. Many thanks to Rob Wiener, Paul Simon, the Royal Court Theatre, Dominic Cook, Oscar Eustace, and Jeffrey Horowitz. These podcasts were produced by Matt Rogers and Sean Williams of Gideon Productions. <laughs>